episode 174 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Wednesday 13th of December 2017. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hi, I'm Carlton Reed of bikebiz.com and this isn't a roundtable podcast, it's an oblong one. Earlier this morning, I was sat on a funky sofa facing two academics on an equally funky sofa. Between us was that oblong table. All of this funky furniture is in a brand new building built by Newcastle University. And I got there early to talk to Dr. Rachel Aldred and Tom Maskell. We talked about cycle infrastructure, equity, academia, the dominance of white faces in cycle activism, and how to get more bums on bike saddles. It's a fascinating show, so let's get on with it. So I'm in the Urban Sciences Building in the centre of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It's a brand new, very, very swanky building. And I am with uh, Dr Rachel Aldred from the University of Westminster, and I'm with Tom Maskell of Newcastle University. Um, so Tom, I'll come to you first, because you invited Rachel to come and give a talk last night, which I uh, attended. And it was a very well attended talk, it was, it was an incredibly cold night, it was icy everywhere, and it was still packed. So that, that says a lot about the, uh, the vibrant cycling culture, maybe, in, in Newcastle, the, the blossoming of, of, of cycle advocacy in Newcastle. But Tom, why have you invited Rachel here and tell me a little bit about you at the same time and and this faculty. Okay sure well I'll start with the, the faculty. Open Lab is the department I work in it's part of computing science within within Newcastle University and what we're trying to do is to get people uh, involved in using technology to contribute data uh, that can lead to social change so that's that's why we're here and what we're doing. Uh, I've been working on a, a master's research project over the summer just starting a PhD now which we've called spokespeople, and that's all about trying to get people to contribute data about their own cycle journeys. I, I spoke to Rachel about that in the summer and told her a little bit about what I'd been doing and uh, that I'd been speaking to people in the cycle campaign and she very kindly agreed to come up and, and speak to us last night. And I think the, how well attended it was on, on the cold night sort of speaks to how well respected Rachel is and how well known, and, and I think that's why we had such a good crowd last night. And as Sally Watson, who's the, one of the, the co-chairs of New Cycling Campaign, was saying last night, lots of familiar faces were there last night. So I recognised, you know, I was dotted around. I knew that person for, for many years. I've known these people. But then a lot of new people. So is that something that you, you recognise as well, that, that cycling in Newcastle is, is on the up and up with that fresh blood? That's a difficult question. Um, the people... I think the, the cycle campaign has got uh, a really good reach. I think it was mainly the cycle campaign that managed to, to attract people along to it. Um, in terms of students, I would say definitely there seems to be more and more um, students around the city 
on their bikes and we've just got to look around this big new building that we're sat in today to see the number of cycle spaces that they've got here and we've got a big cycle store out the back as part of the building and I think that's really starting to, to build among that population. In terms of the, the wider city, more difficult to say, um, but I certainly, I certainly get the impression when you're around younger people that, that there seems to be more of a culture than coming in Newcastle. So Rachel, if you don't mind me saying so, you're probably the best known academic in cycling, but you're now not alone. There is quite a, 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 a number of people who are joining you. Is that something that uh, you'd have realised was going to happen when you started this? It's difficult to say. I mean, certainly it has changed quite a lot. When I was doing cycling research 10 years ago, there wasn't as much stuff. Obviously, there were other people, Dave Horton and Tim Jones and people who were doing stuff and well-known, but there weren't the, the sheer numbers of people doing cycling research. And I think it's really exciting to feel that you're part of a growing field. I mean, obviously, one always hopes that you're doing research in an area that doesn't end up, end up as a dead end, that there will be lots of other people who'll do things. So, And I think the increasing number of PhD students and master's students, early career people who are doing stuff on cycling, is very exciting. That's all well and good. You could say that people are researching this stuff, but do you, do academics get bums on seats? Do we have impact, horrible word? Um, I'd like to think so. Um, I do think there's a lot of interest in the policy world and more broadly in cycling research. It's something that everybody has an opinion on for good or bad, cycling and um, stuff related to cycling. And I talked to a lot of policy makers. Um, recently, I organized an event with the Department for Transport that was on monitoring and evaluation, which is a really important topic related to cycling research. Um, and we had 60 people, a full room, and people wanted to know more about what they could learn from academics around doing better monitoring and evaluation and I was trying to one of the things I have interest I have in common with people at Open Lab is open data and making data available so I was pushing that quite hard as well. Talking about big data and open data uh, one of the reasons that dockless bike sharing mm. is so interesting at the moment is the fact that they are going to be sharing these companies say they're going to be sharing their their usage data because these bikes have all got um, chips in them mm. which can can talk about where people have been how many people have, 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 have used this particular bike but definitely where they've been which which informs academics and policymakers about um, where people want to go the desire lines so can I ask you both you're both nodding there uh, when I mentioned dockless bikes this is not a, a, a new thing uh, to you but it is relatively new sector and it's just come from almost well it has come from, from nowhere within two to three years it's, it's exploded in use do you think dockless bike sharing has a, a future and, and what kind of future do you see that creating Tom first okay so um, the, the Mobike schemes just arrived in Newcastle so that, that's sort of really relevant to us here uh, and it's fantastic to see you, you, you do see them across the city and you do see Quite a wide variety of people riding them. Um, their impact of them is, is really hard to measure for us until we've, until we've had a look at the, the data for them. But um, I would say that personally, having used them, I think they're a fantastic resource. Um, I think it is going to have a big impact on the on the city just for the sheer convenience. And I think that's been one of the really big things about the the, um, the docked bike share schemes in London. And if we can lower the barrier and get that. Uh, here in the city, which doesn't necessarily have the same level of investment, then I think it can only be a, a good thing for us. 
So Rachel, the same question, but I'll also throw in the fact that London has got, in effect, three schemes now. So it's got OFO, it's got Mobike, and of course it's got the existing Boris Santander docked schemes. Uh, OFO say they want to put 150,000 bikes on the streets of London, and they want to make London into Amsterdam. Is that pie mm -hmm. in the sky? Where, where do you see Dockless? I think it's really interesting because, as we know, the Santander um, cycle scheme only covers relatively small area of London, and it, disproportionately, that's more affluent areas as well. So this is an equity issue. And I was talking to people in Enfield uh, from the council at Enfield, who were saying that you know, for some parts of Enfield, not being able to afford a bike, even a hundred pound bike, is actually quite a big issue. So having those bikes on the street at the same time as they're putting in new infrastructure, they're quite hopeful this could be transformative because that will provide people instant access um, to bikes, and they will be. Able to try out the new cycle tracks that are being built so I think you know it's it's early days yet but I think it is quite exciting and the data is also quite exciting because from Santander cycles and from many other schemes you only get origin and destination so you have to uh, use algorithms to, to predict where people have actually gone but using these bikes potentially you can see the actual routes that people chose so it is quite exciting and it could um, lead to potential for people um, having access to bikes who didn't before I think in it'll be most effective in tandem with new infrastructure because you've got something new on the ground you see a bike and you might just jump on it. One of the ideas that I've been floating is around a sort of um, freedom path for um, cycling, so that potentially, um, which could target particularly older people um, who are underrepresented in cycling, and that this could be something that you could do with dockless bikes, that you could possibly give people free access to cycling from certain groups, so that could be quite interesting as well. Leading question, because maybe this is top secret, I don't know, have you been in touch with any dockless bike companies, have they been in touch with you to talk about the academic impact of cycling and how they could maybe help? Um, no, actually, but it is something that I've been thinking about, particularly when I was um, thinking about this idea of the, the freedom bikes, freedom pass for cycling idea. So I think it would be very interesting to be um, in touch with those companies and to be talking about using um, using that data and what they could what could be done with it. Yeah. So in your talk last night, it was about a forty-five minute talk you had uh, lots of slides with some quite um, dense information on there slide um, and like with, with with tables of, of data and stuff all from the active travel survey uh, but I just like to pick on two yep. and and because they were the ones that I think you got most interested in actually you were, you were kind of sparked off on these particular slides so uh, those two slides uh, were the car ownership yep. one and the education yep. level so just describe those slides and describe how, because you, you did get into quite granular data and you're saying like Cambridge is, makes this all moot because there's so many educated people there, but just describe those slides uh, at the, the, the meta level first. Yeah, sure. I'll start with the car ownership because that's simpler. So um, in terms of looking at the likelihood of um, doing any cycling in the past month, um, which is the... the uh, main question that we were using from the Active People Survey. Um, if you look at all cycling in the past month, people who live in a household that owns um, one or more cars are more likely to have done any cycling in the past month. However, when you split off utility versus recreational cycling, you see there's a, a different pattern for each. So that pattern holds for recreational cycling. If you live in a car only household, you're more likely to have done that. But for utility cycling, it's the other way around. So people in households without a car are more likely to have done utility cycling. So that's quite interesting. Um, the one, the educational level one, which to some extent we're seeing as a proxy for class and income, the survey doesn't ask about income because people don't like answering that question. Um, so when you look at, house, at, at um, educational level, if you look across the whole country, 
it looks like people with higher educational level are more likely to do any recreational or utility cycling. So that seems to support the middle class people um, cycle more hypothesis. But the problem is it's confounded by the fact that you have places like Cambridge and Oxford have both a very high number of educated people um, and high levels of cycling. So when you split that out and you do the analysis at the local authority level, so you, you, you avoid that confounding, you find that for utility cycling that association disappears and if anything it's the other way around. Um, for recreational cycling it's still the same, so for recreational cycling, higher educational level, more likely to do recreational cycling, but not for utility cycling. So it shows a sort of cycling is a middle class thing, it's a bit of a myth for utility cycling. I mean it's not without foundation but it's basically, it's a kind of, it's confounded by that Cambridge-Oxford thing rather than being about educational level. That's one of the things that I found was most interesting about your talk last night was this idea of these cultural assumptions that we have mm. and how not fixed they are. How although we, we think we, we see them and we're in the context and we think they're sort of immutable, but actually they change over time, they change in context and they're not something that uh, we, we can't change or that mm. always likely to stay the same forever. Staying on that rough mm. point, so when you were talking about educational level and when you're talking about uh, minority uh, interest in cycling, you then, if you then panned round and looked at the audience there mm. last night and the audience that came to my talk, because I gave a talk at the Cambridge Cycling Campaign last week, it's, 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 it's white. Mm. So people may be doing the cycling and, and the invisible cyclists, which you, which you discussed last night, the people who often don't get measured, uh, they're the invisible cyclists. Um, the people who are doing the activism tend absolutely not to be from minority interest groups. How can that be changed? How can, how can, how can we get more people interested in cycling apart from this, in effect, a clique? because it's white and it's middle class, on, on the activism front? Oh, um, it is a difficult question and an important question. Um, and I guess some of the, that was sort of touched upon in the discussion um, last night. We, we were actually talking about academia rather than activism, but there are some similar lessons around sort of promoting a range of diverse voices, trying to ensure that different people um, speak at events. For one thing, when you've got a panel, for instance, you have a, a, a more diverse and a mixed panel that you think about how you're organising stuff and how, you know, for instance, expecting people to come to meetings at specific time was mentioned and the fact that that for, for people with children perhaps particularly women that might be problematic so I guess we all in our various activities academic advocacy policy whatever it is need to sort of reflect upon some of these practices and that they may be exclusionary and how we can foreground more diverse voices I mean in terms of gender it's quite noticeable that in Newcastle the cycling campaign mm. has a lot of female leadership which is not something that you find in quite a few other places so they've obviously got some things right. Tom same question to you then so, so how can we get more people um, from minority communities into cycling? And just do you recognise that this is an issue and a problem? Well, I think it's, yeah, undeniably there's a certain demographic of people that tend to attend these events. One of the things I'm interested in is how can we involve people in other ways? And how can technology do that, for example? So that, that is, seems to me to be a very um, powerful way of democratising the involvement of people in cyclists, people who might not be drawn to these sort of events that are associated perhaps with uh, you know, white middle class people. 
Um, and I think that's a, a really good way of doing it and of making those invisible cyclists that we're talking about visible and enabling them to have a voice and to have that voice heard by the right people who, who can actually do something and act on the data that they collect and the uh, ideas that they have about how they want things to go. So I think that's a, a really important way we can, we can start to democratise that. Yeah, I was just going to actually, following on from that, that's really important and um, having a range of ways to engage people and involve people. And I remember a story from um, Enfield in London about the fact that they were finding that their consultations were attracting the same people, disproportionately older people and disproportionately white and disproportionately particular demographics and so on. So they reached out and tried different ways of engaging 14 to 22 year olds and they had to do that differently. The traditional consultation processes just didn't reach those mm. people. They weren't intended to reach young, young people and they didn't and so doing it differently allowed them to reach that group. If they just used the old ways of engaging, they wouldn't have got to that group at all and their voices wouldn't have been heard. So Snapchat. <laughs> we were just talking about yes. how, how I can't do Snapchat. Because you're 35. I can't do Snapchat either. <laughs> Already too old Sorry. for it. But it's those technologies, is that what you mean? You've got to engage with, with, with maybe the, the mediums that people are conversant with. Yeah, we might be around going to different places, organising events with different formats and so on. I mean, in, in the case of Enfield, I think it was partly the places they went to and the, the, the methods that they used. I don't think it was necessarily um, the technology so much. But yeah, different, different ways of getting, of getting in touch with people and getting their views and involvement. And for me, it's not just social media either. You know, we've mm. all got these phones in our pockets. You're talking about the data that's available through schemes like Mobike. We've all got computers in our pockets now, you know, a, lot, a lot of people anyway. And, and that's a, a way to, uh, for people to get involved. That it, it brings all sorts of opportunities that are not just limited to sort of communication through social media. So, uh, yeah, really, really important way to, to involve people. And then that data potentially, as well as being analysed by us, when, when that data is available, a whole range of people potentially can analyse it. And that's one thing that I found um, exciting about looking at cycling in London over the past few years was that where there was data available, not just about London, that people would get, would get to grips with it and would visualise it, start doing stuff with it, quite a range of people often. So. I totally agree with that because um, one of the things that we're sort of dealing with at the moment is this sort of lack of capacity within local authorities and yeah. and one of the one of the things there can be of making sense of this data and what does it mean and people can have a role not just in collecting and sort of you know passing it on to the scientists but also in, in sort of trying to, to understand what the, what the data means and what we could do with it so that's another area where I think people can get involved in the future. When I cycled here this morning, there's still some ice on the ground. Uh, it's warmed up a little bit, but it's, it's not pleasant conditions for cycling. But when I was coming through um, the centre of town, there's a woman with a box bike, with a Christiana-type bicycle, with two tots in the front, clearly, because we're, we're, we're recording early in the morning here, mm -hmm. uh, taking them to either primary school or maybe some sort of, of, of nursery. Now, a box bike in Newcastle is an indicator species maybe, an indicator anyway, of something culturally happening. And that's before we've got loads and loads of cycleways, because Newcastle doesn't have as many cycleways as London. We have got a few flagship projects now, but just we haven't got a great deal yet. More is, is potentially coming. But do you see people on box bikes, people in ordinary clothing, people just dotting around in Copenhagen style um, clothing and bicycles, do you see that as a, a, an indicator of a, of a cultural shift happening? 
before we've even got the equity of infrastructure? I mean, I think it's important to think about culture and infrastructure as related and I think one of the positive signs, I was asked this in, in the discussion um, last night about, um, you know, uh, Milton Keynes has infrastructure but it never had that much cycling and I think that shows the importance of um, the broader cultural context and at the moment we have a relatively supportive broader cultural context and that people are interested in cycling. People in London, people generally in surveys will say, most people say they're scared to cycle but they'll say cycling is easy, it's interesting, it's fun, it's cool and all this kind of stuff. People do actually want to cycle. We've, we're seeing a shift away from the car, particularly for younger people. So there is this interesting in cycling and we've also seen that where cycle infrastructure has gone in in um, Cambridge in London and places that there is increasingly good quality evidence that if we put in the infrastructure behavior does change and that shows that there is a supportive um, cultural context that people are interested in taking up cycling so um, I think they kind of work together and I think it's really positive to see people starting to do that most people without the infrastructure are not going to do that but people clearly want to and you see them trying to um, so it's yeah it is it is very positive and we when infrastructure goes in also it is um, you are starting to see that it you do see more women for instance you do start to see a broader range um, of people and with this um, cycle hire as well that's it's interesting that that has contributed to that so in London the cycle hire bikes use the cycle hire bikes are more likely to wear um, what the research is called normal clothing I think or non-sporty clothing anyway to, to, to be dressed in more of a range of clothes and I think that has also helped to culturally normalize cycling. Tom, is that something that you recognise from, from your research? I think it's um, indicative of a latent demand that, that's there that we don't, we don't see as much as, as we'd like to. Um, and yeah, the sort of idea of people cycling around in normal clothing, well, it seems so natural and normal to me, it's, it's what I do. Um, but there's, yeah, there's, there's a, a bit of a lag and uh, I think it's slowly starting to change and people are starting to, to, to realise that it's just a simple way to get about and we're seeing more of that and as we as we get more infrastructure and people feel safer on roads I think you'll, you'll see that massively increase. Now we are seeing for want of a better term bike lash specifically against cycling infrastructure we haven't we've seen a little bit in Newcastle a little bit of kickback but certainly in London it's absolutely massive the way that the taxi groups uh, uh, Lord Lawson uh, other peers other MPs are, have latched onto this, this concept and it does seem to be a growing concept of cycleways cause congestion, cycleways cause pollution. Now, it, it does seem, it almost beggars belief that you know, a benign form of, of transport that doesn't either cause pollution or congestion, in fact relieves both, has now been taken on board by many parts of of mainstream society as doing that. So how can we combat that kind of bizarre thinking? It is bizarre. In a sense, I try and see the positive side that people are not saying um, we shouldn't build cycle infrastructure because people should be able to drive everywhere. They're, they're using the kind of arguments that people have used for building cycling and walking infrastructure. And I, I don't know, I guess it's a kind of, it, it, to some extent, um, the facts are never going to be enough, are they? And so it's also about it's also about having a narrative um, about the vision of the city that we want to see and the qualitative benefits that will come from that. Because you, you know, I mean, there have been reports published. Transport for London recently uh, put um, there was a report. Um, 
published um, that was looking at um, look, looking at congestion in London and looking at causes and solutions and so on, and was highlighting that you know one of the biggest things is simply excess demand. That there's too many people using cars for short trips, mm. basically. Um, but so so research and facts and so on are useful, particularly in specific context but I think it is also about that broader story about the kind of place that we want to live in even if even for people who maybe they will cycle at some point they certainly don't think they will ever cycle but they would like to have a street where their kids can play out and so on so I think the narrative is important as well as specifically um, you know researching the facts in particular cases. So tell me you, I don't know how much you go to London or how much you look at the London scene but that is definitely a growing trend. In Newcastle you do get maybe the taxis saying oh why why did they put John Dobson Street cycleway in sure. for instance it never gets used. Now I put a photograph online the other night showing uh, the road actually not being used and the cycleway being used and you could see it was being used because you saw the tire tracks through the snow. Mm. So this was eight o'clock at night there was a delivery rider coming along it was clearly well used because the snow was like an hour old and there was, there was loads and loads of tracks. So that's the kind of the facts that Rachel was talking about there. This, no, this generally is used, but maybe you don't actually see it being used if you're stuck in a car in loads of traffic and you just see the cycleways hardly empty. Well, that's partly because they're very efficient movers, <laughs> our bicycles. So from a Newcastle perspective, have you seen any kickback from from uh, lobbies that are uh, maybe not quite so positive towards cycling? Well, first of all, just to say about the, the sort of wider benefits of it, because one of the things about John Dobson Street is one of the benefits of the cycleway is how much easier it is for buses to move down that, down that area. And so it's benefiting not just cyclists, but, but also other, other people. And there's millions of people going up and down that. I saw some research by Space for Gosford looking at the numbers of that. And, and, and so, yeah, I think that wider benefit is important in trying to change that narrative. In terms of the... Um, the, the kickback, first of all, I think it's sort of hardly surprising. You know, we've been in a car-dominated culture for a very long time, and of course, some people get very attached to that uh, in, in ways that uh, might seem sort of irrational, but it's, it's tied up with identity and, and difficult to overturn. In, in Newcastle, there has been some kickback, but uh, in generally speaking, that has been quite a small minority, and most of the work that's been done, certainly around streets for people in, in certain areas of, of Newcastle, have found that the, the majority of people that they've worked with are very supportive of the overall changes that people want to see, and, and, and talking about being able to move around the city, not necessarily just on bike, but as a pedestrian, and making these livable spaces seems to be a narrative that has a lot more resonance uh, than the, the sort of simple, let's make this a, a place for cyclists. Mm. And, and I think that's that's something that we've um, it, it has been in the conversation for quite a while. That certainly, you know, be be careful about talking about cyclists. That brings up a particular image. But even talking about cycling, you know, more the broader benefits. What kind, you know, a human scale city that enables people to walk, to bike, to use skateboards, to what, whatever it, it it might be. That's a better place for living and so on. And in, in London, Transport for London is talking about healthy streets to sort of highlight um, a city that allows people to be active rather than necessarily the specific modes obviously then you do have to build infrastructure that supports those specific modes but it's about a broader concept of a city that doesn't damage people's health but actually mm. promotes it. It's interesting you say about skateboards there that's one of the criticisms that's been made about John Dobson mm. Street is that oh it's great for skateboarders <laughs> as if that's it's not <laughs> yeah exactly as if it's not exactly the sort of thing that we want to encourage people to engage with the with the built environment around them and feel safe uh, expressing and moving within, within that so it's, to me it's a really good indicator of a successful scheme rather than the reverse. That's interesting. I, you do get a lot of kickback. In fact, from cyclists, saying, oh, you only ever see as yeah. a skateboard. It's like, well, when I cycle along there, it's like 
they pretty much get out of the they way very the way. quick. They, they're aware of you, mm. you're aware of them, you can see them from a long way away. I don't see it as a huge problem either. No, it's sometimes a bit of sort of fermenting discord, isn't it? I remember around the cycle superhighways time, I was contacted, I think other people contacted by a journalist who was sort of saying, oh, tell us about the problems that cyclists are having with joggers on the superhighway. <laughs> yeah. Now, last night at your talk, Rachel, I don't know if you, you, you knew, but the, the chief transport planner for Newcastle was, was in the audience. Um, so that tells you that there's political buy-in from the leaders of, of Newcastle. Now, in London, famously, there was a political buy-in from, from Boris, and that fed through into Transport for London. Do you see any change with the new mayor? Well, he's not new anymore, but with the mayor who is no longer Boris, so Sadiq Khan. Do you see any slackening of uh, purpose from Sadiq Khan and from the slimmed down, less rich TfL? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's positive and negative sides. I think the fact that the draft mayor's transport strategy was very strong on mode shift was really good. Um, had, you know, strong, um, strong sense that, yes, we are trying to reduce car use and we're trying to reduce car ownership too, which was interesting. So that was all very positive. Uh, I think, in, in theory, the reorganisation of Transport for London so that people are less in spe mode-specific teams can also be quite positive. We are trying to mainstream cycling and walking, so it's not just seen as an add-on, but it's hopefully should be throughout the organisation but obviously there are um, major financial challenges um, for TfL like for many other transport authorities and I think there has been a perhaps perceived to be a slowing down in pace that some schemes have been delayed or cancelled watered down and so on I mean against that you know we have to remember that the speed up we saw under the last mayor was kind of pretty much at the end um, that we had one term of Boris where there wasn't really much happening at all so I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm kind of quite interested in the new um, livable neighbourhood funding that's been um, announced for a number of London boroughs and there's some quite interesting schemes that I think can, might be are, are being designed as part of that that have clear cycling and walking benefits so uh, yeah I'm, I'm optimistic you know there is change some of that change is positive some less so but it's yeah I'm hopeful and Tom same question to you but from, from a more Newcastle point of view so the, tr the main transport planner was here last night he has been very supportive he's got to be supportive of all transport mm -hmm. groups and he is he, 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 he kind of like he's, he's big into buses he, he, he in effect he says well the motorways are for cars so he's very supportive of motorways mm -hmm. for cars but just not motorways no, not for cars coming into the to the city center so the same question to you then with the main transport planner coming to Rachel's talk last night how heartening was that and, and do you see a political shift happening in in Newcastle in the time that you've been doing your research yeah, well, it, it is great to, to see him and other people from the council coming along to these things. I, um, my feeling is that they're broadly supportive and uh, in you know, trying to do what they can to, to support um, mode shift and to make it possible to, for people to, to move by bike and on foot more easily. Um, I think where the difficulty lies is in resource for them. Certainly that's what, where, what I've come across, is they felt that there's, there's things that they would like to do that they're unable to do. Um, uh, of course, there is there is kickback, which you've already alluded to from other people as well, which they've got to take into account mm. as sort of de democratically accountable bodies. Um, so they're, they're always mindful of that. But but broadly, I, I feel that it's moving in the right direction. That they're listening to us and they do want to listen to the message. It's going to take a little while, I think, for 
um, them to embrace some of the things that, that need to happen. Of course, that's slow because they're, they're responding to the to the whole community. But broadly, I'm, I'm yeah, I feel really positive about the way they're responding to my work and, and uh, being involved in it. So they're engaged with your work. They 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 know what you're doing. They're they're consulting with you. What 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 exactly do you mean when you say they they're appreciative of your work? Um, well, I've, I've been speaking to them from the beginning about it, and um, they they haven't been massively involved. That's not surprising because of the stage that our research has been at. So it's a massive research project to begin with. But aware with it, have given us feedback on what they'd like to see in it to, to be improved. Uh, it's again to come back to this question of resource. That is where their concern is. Um, so one one comment that I have had from them is, yeah, we, we really like this. We think it's a really good idea to enable people to contribute directly to us. Uh, you know, concerns as well as positive things about the, the way they're moving about the city. But just there's a clear reticence there to, to not raise expectations too much in a way that they might not be able to respond to. So yeah, I think that's something that's, um, as I say, it's positive that they're, they're trying to engage, but they're, they're certainly concerned about that. So Rachel, Tom, and me, and other people in Newcastle are very jealous of London. Because London, for all of its many uh, faults in its transport system, uh, does get more money than anywhere else um, to spend on, on, on well, everything, basically, but certainly on, on transport and infrastructure. So. Us out here, out in the sticks, out in the boondocks, we, we're, we're jealous of London. Now, as you're in London, maybe you don't see that so much, and, 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 and you see maybe we, we, we haven't actually got that much in infrastructure. But when you come out to here and you think, but London's got so much more compared to Cardiff, compared to Manchester. Manchester maybe is getting some. Um, at Newcastle, uh, to Norwich, all these other places, which we, we look at London and we just go, wow, if only we had even a fraction of what you guys get. So do you recognise that London is this amazing outlier and for all its faults, it, you've got an amazing stuff going on there? OK, Carlton, I'm going to take you to Havering, Bromley and Redbridge next time you're down in London. It's, the, the changes, you know, we have seen some amazing changes and London is very distinctive. But if you look at outer London mm. versus the rest, you know, versus inner London, then there are such big differences. I mean, the mode shift, the availability of different modes, the increase in cycling and so on, that is happening disproportionately in inner and central London. And people in outer London are often being left behind in this. And th this is a real concern. So, um, they, you know, having skis in outer London, um, getting change in outer London is really important for us. But that said, I do recognise that you know that we, we have well a two-tier or three-tier system, perhaps a three-tier system in terms of cycling investment. I led a study looking at barriers to cycling investment, and it was clear that people in London were much more state. This was talking to stakeholders, uh, well, surveying stakeholders about their perceptions. People who work in local authorities and consultants and so on, and people who worked in London were much more positive generally than people who worked outside London. So I think you know. It's not wrong what you're saying it's not it's obviously it's very patchy within London and then maybe the second tier was some of the larger metro areas like Manchester and so on where there seems to be better access to funding although there are other examples for instance Leicester which has done a mm. lot with really very little funding um, from the Department for Transport there's also um, you know Bristol has seen a big change Bristol has had funding from Cycle City Ambition and so on so it's it's more it's I think it's a three-tier system so that you have London and you have other, you know, there's bigger metropolitan areas and I, I'm concerned that smaller cities, towns and rural areas are being left behind. As some of those places um, really 
the, the scope for cycling, if you looked at, you know, in terms of the types of trips that people are making, you might think, well, there's actually more potential for cycling in some of those places because, you know, in London, some of the, particularly for people from outer London, um, some of the commute distances certainly are relatively long. Um, so it's, it's a real shame that those places are missing out. So you almost, sorry, Tom, you almost touched there on the propensity to cycle tool which is another bit of um, research that you're doing with Robin Lovelace and other academics. So is that where you were going there? Just that the, 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 there is a desire to cycle in lots of these places, including in, in, in rural areas, and we just need to cater for that. So the propensity is there. Let's just actually give people the tools, in effect, to get on their bikes. Yeah, I mean, that work with um, James Wilcock, Robin Lovelace and Anna Goodman um, so in, in the academic team and others, it's, it's been, yeah, it's been a, a project funded by the Department for Transport, really exciting project, looking at basically sort of partly just separating out the impact of trip distance and hilliness in terms of commutes. And so kind of answering that question, oh, well, it's all flat in the Netherlands. In, in England, nobody can cycle because they're all cycling 15 miles up a hill to work, and that um, proves not to be the case. Obviously, distance and hilliness matter. So if you're living in Cornwall, then there's a greater likelihood your trip's going to be longer and hillier. And in, one of the things that we found with the PCT was that in those cases, potentially e-bikes can make a big difference. Uh, obviously, there needs to be the infrastructure, the supportive environment for people to, to use e-bikes, and that's one reason they haven't really taken off here yet. Um, but I do think, yeah, many of those sort of smaller market towns, and in a sense, you look at those places and you th think, okay, in London we have this amazing north-south and east-west superhighway, but for many people, they don't actually go near that, those superhighways at all, so we've still got a long way to go, whereas some of these market towns, if you, if you dealt with the north-south and the east-west routes, you're probably mostly there. So it, it is a real a shame that those places, um, people are not, yeah, people are not able to cycle, because I, I remember a student um, doing a study looking at, um, Ips, it was a it was a small, um, large, well, large village outside of Ipswich, and it's basically two and a half miles from Ipswich, and nobody cycles, everybody drives. And I looked at it, and it was really, it was obvious there was no way that I would have cycled that. Mm. And it's like these people are being denied the opportunity to cycle, or to walk, in fact, that distance. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's a scandal because many, in many ways, you would think that some of our larger metropolitan areas would not be the places where you would see the increase in cycling happen first. So. Tom, I kind of like interrupted you a minute ago. Were you, were you bursting to something well, to just, say something there? Just, just to say that the um, we're talking about the jealousy of, of, of sort of areas like Newcastle, perhaps to mm. London. I, I come from, a, from one of these market towns that we're just talking about at Hexham, and I've got jealousy of Newcastle. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it feels to me like they're, they're really manageable, simple places where there should be good connections to, to, to the shops. They're, they're, you know, crying out for cycling infrastructure, and, and we haven't got it. Uh, yeah, so, personal experience recently of. of going between Hexham and Corbridge, two little uh, town and a village of just about three miles apart from each other. Really obvious, uh, along the Tyne Valley, should be a, a place for me to cycle. Tried to cycle there with my pregnant wife. And I got to the end of the journey and thought, you know, I'm not actually going to do that again. Because although I'm fairly pig-headed myself about it, and it doesn't really trouble me when, you, when you're thinking about uh, people who are a little bit more vulnerable than you, it really start, you start to become aware of what, a, um, what an unhealthy, uh, unwelcoming environment it is for people to, to move about it, you know, on the roads as they are at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now I'm the executive editor, or editor in, at large, of bikebeers.com, the trade magazine. So as, a, as the representative of the industry among us here right now, I'm looking to you, no, no pressure, I'm looking to you to get more bums on seats. So we can sell more bikes, so we can sell more um, uh, bike 
bits. What can you say to the industry that, yes, that's what you want too. You want more people cycling, so more people are not going to be buying stuff. And also, what can the industry do for you to help you do that for us? So Rachel first. And you, Tom, you've got to think about that one. <laughs> I'm coming to you next. When, when we were talking about the um, dockless bike hire, one of the interesting things that I, I thought of was that the um, OFA, I think it was, has been recently sort of making statements about the need for more bike infrastructure in London, which I thought was really interesting and quite positive, and it got quite a high profile. And I think it would be great to see more um, people speaking out from the bike industry sort of saying that we need this better infrastructure, we need this better cycling environment, and it's, you know, primarily um, protected tracks on main roads, but also, um, you know, quiet, healthy neighbourhoods that people can walk and cycle through. So I think sort of the, the, in, the industry speaking out for infrastructure could be very important. I mean, infrastructure is not the, not the only thing. I mean, there's other things. I've been um, pleased to see the interest taken by police services and local authorities in near misses and, you know, creating a more supportive um, context for cycling in that way. But infrastructure, I think, is, is so important. So you want the industry to talk more about infrastructure? Yeah, I think so. Um, learning from the car industry. I guess. In what way? In what, in, what, in what way has the car industry done that? And how, how, what can the, the bike industry learn from the car industry? Um, I guess in terms of the history of the Rose Lobby and the way that that was supported by the car industry. Um, and the way I've, I'm kind of quite impressed in some respects when I'm um, looking at the way that that operated back in the 1950s when we didn't have really, we didn't have a motorway system and the way that that was quite forward looking as well. And I think that's what we need to be now, although obviously we're looking forward to a slightly mm -hmm. different future <laughs> to what the, the, the car lobbyists were looking forward to in the 1950s. But yeah, so having that big picture, kind of the, the bike can be part of transforming society to build these healthier cities, towns, rural areas and so on, but infrastructure is a really um, important part of that. So you mentioned the car lobby there and you mentioned motorways. So the car lobby started, as you know, being quite active very early on in, in the, 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 the motor industry's uh, uh, life. But it took, in effect, in the UK, 50 years 59 years, in effect. So we say 1900 is when, when they started really getting big, and in 1959 is the first uh, time when a motorway went in. So it took 60 years for that very, very effective lobby to actually get, for want of a better word, the built infrastructure that then creates the, the huge demand for motoring, if we say the motorway system did that. Are we looking at a 60-year cycle for cycling. So are we talking about we're going to get mass Amsterdam style uh, cycle use in the UK in epoch away rather than we're not talking three years time. In, in using your academic um, overview of this rather than your desire mm -hmm. for this, where do you see historically in the future, where, where are we going to get to with the, the kind of activism that we've got today compared to that long burn that it took for the motor industry, the motor lobby? One could have quite a long discussion about the role of the motorways within the change that we saw in relation, you know, in terms of mass motorisation. But um, thinking about time here, I think the, the, the positive thing in relation to cycling is that we are seeing um, 
international standard cycle infrastructure go in so we already have our Preston bypass I guess um, and we so and we're seeing that behavior change is happening and in some cases it's quite sub, it's really quite substantial albeit from a low base so I think we are at a moment of change and we are seeing in um, London which to some extent is it on its own or is it um, you know signaling a future that the rest of the country will follow we don't entirely know but London has seen really substantial mode shift away from the car primarily towards um, the bus and towards walking so I think we have seen a cultural shift which started really in the 1990s in terms of um, changing behavior towards the car so you know we have had um, we have had a few decades of that so I don't know I mean it is it clearly is a long game I mean in London um, we are a long way off from having cycle infrastructure um, available to everyone across the capital and the mayor transport strategy hopes that that will be the case by 2041 which is obviously some way away so uh, it, it is a long game but I think change as Tom alluded to at the start of this change can in terms of cultural assumptions can happen very quickly and suddenly it becomes normal that your mum might jump on a bike and that can lead really rapid change so I don't know I think with an academic hat on it's actually really quite hard to say um, how long it will take and whether it will happen at all but certainly what um, people do what the bike industry does what a whole load of other stakeholders do will make a difference I think we know so I guess that's my answer so Tom we, we kind of segued into the yeah, motor yeah, lobby sure. there because because Rachel mentioned the motor lobby mm -hmm. so I came in on that which is my specialist subject um, but slip backwards to that that previous question mm. which was just what can the bike industry do for um, academics mm. or for advocates it's often the, that that line is blurred uh, and, and and vice versa uh, what, what can you do for the industry because the industry wants to see more people cycling obviously uh, and wants to see more people buying stuff so how, how can that symbiosis how can that um, how can we how can we talk to each other more how can we help each other more from your point of view well, it's interesting that you, you say, you know, you, you're looking to us to say how can we get more people on, on seats, which is, which is great. And it's certainly one of the ambitions that I've got for my work is, is to try and uh, make it possible for more people to cycle and to talk about cycling and to get their opinions across. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of the way in which I, I feel that my research can contribute is not really through myself, but through the way that we can use technology to get people to contribute directly. And that's where I see uh, my work going. Um, as for how that, that can work for uh, the bike industry as well, um, I mean, I think one of the things we were talking about yesterday is a slight, slightly different point, but is, is, is e-bikes and, and the future of that. And, and we th I think that's you know, an, an enormous way that it, that it can go forward. Um, and I'd like to see more use of data as well um, and I, within, within cycling, um, you know, when products are sold, there's, there's the opportunity for us here to collect an enormous amount of really powerful data that can help to make the case uh, to support what we're doing. And I think if the, if the bike industry can, can adopt that as well as adopting e-bikes, then I think that can, that can really contribute as well. Thank you both for what's been a, a fascinating uh, conversation. I know you've got to, to rush off in a minute and you've got to, to, to show uh, Rachel the wonderful facilities you've got here. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a TV studio, I was told, last night. You've got all sorts in this wonderful, wonderful uh, building. But just to finish, well, and the way we normally finish on this particular podcast, is we um, get the guests to tell us where people can find them on either social media or a website or wh wherever you want people to look for your information. And Tom, when we came on here, 
uh, I said, I've just followed you on Twitter, and you say, well, I wouldn't bother doing that because you don't post that much. So you're going to have to think of some other way. You're going to have to tell me your Snapchat handle or something. Think of it quickly. But Rachel, I'll start with you. So how can people um, interact with you, uh, look at your, your, your work? How do people get in touch with you? Um, yeah, well, I do use Twitter um, quite regularly, so I'm at Rachel Aldred on Twitter, and also I've got a website which is racheloldred.org, and my papers, for instance, I put um, links to my academic papers up there, and I, I sort of sporadically blog. I haven't done that for a few months. One, was, one, one will be available in the new year, I suspect. But... And Tom, I've given you a few seconds to think of it yeah. there. So what are your Snapchat, Instagram, where, where can we find you, Facebook? We've got a website. It's based on a terrible pun, uh, spokespeople.uk. Uh, you can find out about the project that we've been doing there with using uh, Bluetooth buttons on bikes to make it very easy for people to give details about uh, experiences that they have while, while they're cycling. Uh, and all my contact details are on there. So spokespeople.uk. Thank you to my guests today, Dr. Rachel Aldred and Tom Maskell. I hope the next show will be a Christmas special in which the show regulars, remember them, uh, give out their cycling themed gift ideas. But it has been a struggle to get us all together in the same Skype space at the same time. As always, you can get show notes and more at the-spokesmen.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing and listen out for another show real soon. Meanwhile, Get out there and ride.